regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form in-depth conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Alessia Vishnik, the CEO and co-founder of Wildlabs, the AI observability company on a mission to build the interface between AI and human operators. Prior to Wildlabs, Alessia was a CEO in residence at the Allen Institute for AI, where she evaluated commercial potentials for the latest advancement in AI research. Earlier in her career, Alessia spent nine years at Amazon leading machine learning adoption and tooling efforts. She was the founding member of Amazon's first AI research center in Berlin, Germany. Uh, Alessia is also the founder of Rescuarity AI, a global community of more than a thousand AI practitioners who are committed to making AI technology robust and responsible. So yeah, Alessia, uh, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, James, for having me. I'm really excited to be here and excited for our conversation. Beautiful. By way of introduction, I believe that you were born in Kazakhstan, came to Washington State in the U.S. during high school, and then you later discovered a passion and extreme ability for mathematics. So can you share a bit about some of these formative experiences you're upbringing? Uh, this, this indeed goes very far into my history. Mathematics has been my favorite subject since elementary school. I think that was the one thing that I was good at. And my parents nurtured this interest in me by putting me to specialized math school from the fifth grade. And that's where I started also developing an interest in coding and mathematical problem solving. When I moved to the United States in high school, because I took so much math classes, so many math classes during middle school in Kazakhstan. In high school in the United States, the standard curriculum of math classes was very easy and, and boring for me. So my teacher suggested that I take classes in the local community college. And uh, I set a fun goal to go through the whole community college math curriculum before graduating from high school. And uh, it was a kind of a silly goal. But I guess that was probably one of the uh, most formative decisions. And ultimately, this is what laid the foundation for my you know, professional path in engineering and machine learning. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I'm just curious, like as an immigrant, right, moving to a new country can be certainly challenging. And what do you recall about just integrating into the American culture? It was uh, certainly very challenging, kind of being dropped in to a completely different planet with a very different culture, especially in high school where, you know, simple things like pop culture, I had no reference to, I didn't understand majority of the jokes. And yeah, maybe that's another reason why I really excelled in math, because that's, you know, one thing where I could easily make friends, because I could, you know, solve my test and then help others or do my homework and then help others. But yeah, I think as every immigrant, my experience was very, very challenging at first, but ultimately, 
this opened so many opportunities for me that were completely impossible in my home country. And I'm really grateful that I went through the challenges, arrived to all of the doors that were opened in front of me. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. For college, you went to the University of Washington to study applied mathematics. How could you describe your overall college experience? I think as every person of my age describing their college experience in one word, I would describe it as confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I took a lot of coding classes. I took a lot of core computer science classes and a lot of math classes. I was really torn in the time between being an engineer and being a mathematician. An engineering path for me was something very practical, uh, you know, something very concrete that I could go and get a job in after college. And the mathematician path was, you know, an academic path, which I could pursue to really turn my passion into a contribution to the field. And ultimately, I was graduating in 2008. And there was a lot of economic uncertainty, which, you know, these days, that's probably since 2008, every year has been a year of some economic uncertainty. But back then, kind of evaluating my options, I chose to pursue a, the practical path. And I joined Amazon straight out of college as a very confused 20 year old. Confusing. That's what you described your experience. Do you recall any of your favorite classes, maybe other math programming classes that you took at UDAF? I would say they're were probably two very formative classes in my career. One was a programming languages class. So just a very generic class that studied programming languages. And the reason I think that class is formative is because I learned that it, it doesn't really matter which programming language you need to code in. There are certain fundamentals that describe how the language works and certain aspects of, you know, how does it compile or get interpreted? How do you profile it to ensure performance? What are some good code style practices and so on? And these are very kind of generic patterns. And once you learn those generic patterns, you stop worrying about what kind of programming language you're good at. Of course, you should develop depth in a few, but really ramping on a programming language became an easy thing after understanding those fundamentals. And then another course that was really important, and I, I remember it fondly, was a course on climate modeling. So mathematical modeling applied to climate change and kind of climate phenomenon. And that class was, again, very formative because I always thought, you know, like things that have to do with nature are not possible to describe in mathematics in college. Well, at least that was kind of, I knew a lot of examples where you could describe some things mathematically, but it was fascinating to model various phenomenon like El Nino and La Nino effects on the planet weather system mathematically and kind of actually build predictive models. I think that's where I fell in love with predictive modeling, which ultimately is what machine learning is but you know when I was in college there was maybe one AI class that you could take so really the true machine learning experiences I think were gained in applied math classes. Yeah thanks for sharing the programming language and climate modeling right definitely cultivate that knowledge of coding and just generally potential application of how math can be used for the real world but you take a lot of from that and use it for the rest of your career. So you mentioned that you start working at Amazon 
after you finishing college at UW. More specifically, you work as a software engineer in the QA, quality assurance, and then DevOps organization for about the first five years of your tenure there. What were some of the most impactful projects that you contributed to during that period? I was very fortunate to join Amazon in 2008. It was not a very popular company to join. It was, you know, a really fast growing store that initially was just selling books. <laughs> But the talent that this company brought together and kind of this rapid growth that the company was experiencing was really unprecedented and it was a fascinating place to be. And I joined the company when they were transforming all of their infrastructure and way of developing software from something not scalable to something scalable. So I was very lucky to witness you know, the process that an organization undergoes to be able to deploy code daily, which sounds very basic today. You know, Most of the time, most of the teams can embrace continuous integration and continuous deployment. But in 2008, the tools for that were lacking. And an organization as big as Amazon with an Amazon retail website, it was really difficult to go from weekly or monthly code deployments to daily. So some of the interesting tools that I built there were tools around automated testing of the code, both from kind of the UI perspective and then from the performance perspective, how do you automatically evaluate things So you can really cut down the cycle of quality assurance for the code that you're about to push to something that could be done in hours versus days or weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, and another really fun project that I worked on is monitoring for latency. So how mm -hmm. fast the retail website pages are loading is really critical to the customer experience. If you're trying to shop on Amazon, you definitely don't want to wait for a minute or two for a page to load. And Actually, in 2008, there were some pages that would take more than a minute to load. So mm -hmm. the fun project that I worked on was instrumenting many components of the web page to see how fast or how slow are they loading and actually monitoring for regressions. So monitoring when a component goes from really loading really quickly to loading slower and tracing that change back to a particular code change or a particular configuration change to understand what caused it so we can revert it or fix it. Yeah, I see. I'm just curious, based on this kind of work, writing tests, automated workflow and, and checking for qualities and do monitoring, what, what is the required mindset that you could acquire in order to like do that kind of work? Because you know, we can touch on this topic of monitoring later on in the conversation, but I'm just curious, like, what do you learn from early in the career that mindset by reliability and, and making sure that software is not buggy? Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately it's the realization that as an engineer, you build software. And I would say it's too easy to think that, you know, you're just building software, deploying it, making sure that it checks the spec and so on. And then you kind of repeat. And I think... If you're deploying software in an environment as used by others as a retail website of Amazon, you start realizing that there's huge responsibility that lies in every line of code that you deploy because every line of code could create undesirable customer experiences. So realizing that you know software is not just about writing really well-formatted code or really maybe even performing code, but it's about how it impacts people. And I think ultimately, you know, Amazon retail websites, no lives at risk if things don't go well, although the company could lose a lot of money, but there's plenty of software that we write that 
you know, can put people's lives at risk, realizing that that is an aspect of your work and embracing the idea that one of the most important aspects of your work then is to write something very robust as I think an important kind of mindset that I acquired during that journey. Yeah, I see. I'm sure the kind of risk management way of approaching writing and building production levels software system is crucial. In the latter half of your tenure with Amazon, you assume technical program management responsibility, ranging from working on the development of an internal machine learning platform to have established an ML research center in Berlin to build some of the internal tools for scientists and engineers within the core ML organization in the New York office. Would you mind going over some of these critical milestones of your Amazon career chapter? Sure, this was very exciting time in many ways. In 2012, when machine learning became cool again, you know, AlexNet came out, made a big splash. Organizations like Amazon, really big, you know, just put them under the umbrella of things, began investing into internal machine learning groups, and Amazon was one of them. I met Ralph Herbrick, who was at the time a director of machine learning at Amazon, and he was starting a machine learning R&D center in Berlin, Germany. His vision of building a team that would be the core machine learning function of all Amazon was contagious. So I packed my bags and moved to Berlin uh, in the summer of 2013. And I became one of the first members of that team and the only TPM, technical a program manager of that team, which really meant that I was the person whose job was to bridge the gap between researchers and the business. And this was a huge opportunity, probably one of the most unique opportunities in the whole company. Not only I got to kind of pioneer this path of building and deploying machine learning applications at a company like Amazon, but also I got to travel and to live in Berlin and build my network and meet a lot of brilliant people and learn from them. I got to be essentially in the forefront of the ML adoption by internal machine learning teams, uh, which gave me an opportunity to launch a forecasting platform for a quarter of all Amazon global retail and carry a pager for that platform and essentially respond to you know, midnight calls whenever something gets forecasted incorrectly, which allowed me to really firsthand grow an appreciation for robust machine learning pipelines and the tools that we need to develop to ensure that they're robust. And then I got to be a part of the first AWS machine learning service, which was a really quick service that got deprecated fairly quickly, replaced with SageMaker, but it was the first attempt of AWS to have a service that focuses on machine learning deployment. And then I got to be the founding member of the first internal machine learning platform, Mm -hmm. which again was probably one of the most formative experiences because I got to build the tools for all of the machine learning scientists and data scientists at Amazon to help them deploy machine learning solutions in a robust and responsible manner. Yeah, I see. I was kind of curious, like during this transition from fully doing like QA and, and DevOps function to become a TPM, what are some of the learning curves that you experienced and how did you like quickly ramp up that knowledge acquisition procedure? There were quite a few learning curves. Uh, so first of all, the knowledge, so my applied math background, although it was you now incredibly relevant, but it was definitely not sufficient. 
uh, and a little bit dated, I would say. So the first thing that I did is I picked up the pattern recognition and machine learning book from Christopher Bishop and started reading it, marking it and asking questions. Essentially, I was in a really fortunate position where I was the one engineer who had a lot of engineering best practices to share with a lot of machine learning scientists. So there was a lot of knowledge transfer. I was helping the team ramp up on best practices in software development and best practices in software operations. And they were helping me ramp up onto the latest machine learning state-of-the-art approaches, various ways of solving kind of standard pattern problems and so on. So there was a significant learning curve that started from first principles and going back to the classic machine learning books. Yeah, so like really picking up and learning about ML and incorporate that into your existing math education and a software background. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And then you also mentioned being part of the early founding team for the internal ML platform. So I believe this is like around 2015, 2016 and ML platforms, honestly, is not even like a term yet, right? What are some of the hurdles of creating that platform product and drive buy-in within the organization? How do you like actually draw team, popularize and get adoption from different functions, different ML teams within the company? Yes, it was quite a challenge. Machine learning platforms, as you said, were not a thing and things were very much decentralized. Even in our team that was called core machine learning, there were you know, ultimately six sub teams in that organization scattered all over the world. And every sub team had their own way of building and deploying models. And the reason we decided to start an effort in building a, a machine learning platform is because we saw a lot of duplication of efforts. So every team had a handful of tools for building models, deploying models, creating reproducible notebooks, keeping track of all of the parameters and metadata, keeping track of the performance and the health of the models and performance and health of the data. There was a lot of duplication of effort. So we essentially surveyed everybody involved to understand what types of common patterns are there and what are the biggest pain points. And ultimately, I think, which was big surprise to me, and I like sharing the surprising finding, ultimately, in order to gain adoption for a machine learning platform that, you know, in a way solved a lot of people's problems, but it required a change in how you do your work. So instead of using your own tools that you had to build and maintain, which sounds very painful, but it's really hard to get people to change. So ultimately, one of the main ways I drove adoption of that platform in the company is by making one of the biggest pain points very easy. And that pain point had nothing to do really with how the model is developed. The pain point had to do with access to data. So Amazon had a lot of data sources, which were hard to get access to for many reasons, because they were in some Oracle databases or because getting access just from the perspective of being granted access to red data or orange data and like high data privacy, red tape uh, was very challenging and had a lot of bureaucracy around it. So the biggest feature, the most demanded feature of our machine learning platform was simplified access to data. And once uh, we made that possible, people started switching over just because it would take them a lot less time to access some of the data sources that they wanted to access. And ultimately that is that was the main thing that drove adoption. And 
you know, once people started experiencing the platform, it was an easier sell. But initially, getting people to change from how they do things to a new way, even if it's a no-brainer and you can show that it's really easy, it's not enough to just show it's easy. There has to be some kind of big, big incentive. Yeah, like you said, understanding the workflow of the sentence engineer users, then identify the biggest bottleneck, and then, like what you said, make the biggest pain point become the easiest part of selling. And in this case, it was simplify access to data. Yeah, I mean, that's really a great insight that I think people who build tools, especially internal tools in back organization can take away from and in order to get more users to adopt their products. Reflecting on your whole, you know, nine years stint at Amazon, the company definitely have a very unique culture that has been studied extensively to various media and books and sources like that. From an insider perspective, you know, what are some of your biggest takeaways regarding the culture of customer obsession and operational excellence? It's interesting that you highlighted these particular two aspects of very rich Amazon culture, which I think at this point is really well known. They have all these leadership principles that everybody basically gets ingrained in their mind and carries it with them for the rest of their professional career. Uh, specifically, customer obsession and operational excellence are the two, I think, most important things that I took away and two of my favorite things that I took away. And I uh, already touched on this a little bit in the one of the previous questions that you asked, I think these two aspects of culture are probably the most important things that an engineer has to embrace because ultimately, again, being an engineer and deploying any sort of software, whether it's machine learning software, traditional software, anywhere, it has a huge impact on users, consumers, and ultimately, I mean, all life actually. And I don't think many engineers think of their job this way. I think it's all about writing code, making sure it's well-tested, well-styled, making sure you you know keep up with the sprint and so on. And what Amazon culture really tries to instill in an engineer is that their work impacts people and impacts customers and impacts them in a huge way. And that customers have to be in the center of all decisions. And when it comes to operational excellence, it's just another, I would say, attribute of this re responsibility. I think, you know, when it comes to machine learning applications as an industry, I believe we could be a lot better at embracing customer obsessions and operational excellence by incorporating it in every decision, every line of code that we write, uh, every aspect of the design of the application that we develop. Because in the end of the day, these two things, customer obsession and operational excellence are just synonyms of responsible AI, human-centric AI, robust AI, and so on. It's just another way of talking about things that are top of mind, I think, right now in the community. Yeah, thanks for providing that input. And definitely, it seems like you still get the inspiration from that time and enjoy even day-to-day -day work these days. And so I believe that uh, have a huge impact on the way you currently run your company. So, so after about nine years at Amazon, you decided to go back to school and enroll in this program at UDAF called the Master of Science in Entrepreneurship. So my question now, twofold, what was the rationale behind your decision to go back to school? And secondly, like what were some of the core entrepreneurial muscle that you got to exercise thanks to this experience? So the first question was the rationale behind the decision. 
uh, I wanted to break out of the Amazon ecosystem. And as you just pointed out, you know, there's a lot of Amazon still in me. And I joke that you can take you know, a person out of Amazon, but you can't take Amazon out of the person. And I mean it in a good way. I think there are a lot of good cultural aspects that get ingrained. But my goal was to break out of the Amazon ecosystem and learn how to be an engineer in the wild. And by in the wild, I mean outside of a big company. And because I joined Amazon when I was 20 and I worked there for almost 10 years, I had no idea how to do that and where to start. So I decided to take a year off work and figure it out. That was my one goal. I decided that I can do a sabbatical. That's, you know, a very, some people travel for their sabbaticals, but my sabbatical was a very productive sabbatical. So I seeked ways to create structure in my sabbatical. And I found this awesome program, Masters of Science and Entrepreneurship at the University of Washington. And I looked at the curriculum and I thought, this is the perfect structure for my sabbatical because you know there are a lot of skills that I would either polish or learn. This program is all about building your network, building your brand as an individual, and figuring out what kind of entrepreneurial change you can make in the world. So I joined the program and spent the year there. I think it was one of the best decisions I've made. Again, I think my life has a lot of very fortunate moments in it. And I think that was probably one of the most fortunate moments because I was able to take a year off and not work anywhere. And when I was younger, I couldn't even dream about such an opportunity. I think ultimately, it's probably one of the best things that you can do to yourself as a professional kind of at this point of your career after like 10 years of experience, because it really allows you to grow in meaningful ways, put yourself completely outside of your comfort zone and seek new experiences and new knowledge and so on. The program was incredible. You know, being a student again for a year was amazing. I also spent time volunteering at various startups because I wanted to learn how startups work. So I was like a very overglorified intern. I'll just join and say, hey, I don't have to pay me anything. You just, you know, I'll be here once a week for a full day, give me tasks and I'll do them. And, you know, I spent time calling customers and asking what they like or don't like about the product. I spent time prototyping various data science projects. Uh, creating various data collection efforts for different startups. And this gave me a really good insight into how startups operate. And then specifically from the program, if I had to just highlight two things that I took away, I would say it was networking and negotiations. Two skills that I think you do not develop well enough while you're in a big company. You can network in a big company, but it's not the same. And you can also negotiate in the big company. Again, not the same. Being able to do this as an individual when you're not connected to an organization, I think it's a very special and very important, well, two very special and very important sets of skills to be successful outside of a big company and to be ultimately successful as an entrepreneur. I'm pretty intrigued about your about negotiation. What are some of the negotiation techniques that you, you used on a day-to-day basis that you learned from that program? I might sound very naive, but I was very surprised in the negotiation class that negotiations are not about winning and losing. Mm-hmm. Negotiations are about winning for both sides. It's about finding an alignment where both sides are 
equally happy, as equally as possible. And I think that was, I mean, again, maybe I was just very naive and maybe everybody knows this by the time they're in their 30s. I didn't. I always pursued negotiations as, you know, your way of getting your way. And to me, it was surprising to kind of learn various techniques for making sure that actually the person who's on the other side of the negotiation table is walking away very happy. And I think I use, I mean, I use these skills every day. I use these skills when I'm talking to customers. Mm-hmm. I use these skills when I am recruiting people. Mm-hmm. I use these skills when I talk to investors. I think yeah, negotiations are the art of being able to negotiate, I think is one of the most important skills. Yeah, thanks for sharing that win-win idea. And honestly, like positive sum mindset is just really important. You're like cultivate long-term relationship, no matter what problem you're trying to solve, that involves like another party. Establish that clear transparency and cadence and allow the other party to benefit from that. It's a very different way of looking at things, right? You mentioned about networking earlier and, and yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your experience volunteering at different startups and learn about how things work. And I believe also like spend some time at Madrona Venture Labs, right? So consultant there and kind of learn about different ML and data company in Seattle specifically. How would you describe sort of the ML startup ecosystem in Seattle and how does that compare to like other city in the States? I would describe the Seattle startup ecosystem as young. <laughs> And in the beginning of its development, it's still fairly small, but it is growing very rapidly. I think as far as, so there's the startup ecosystem and then there's the machine learning ecosystem. And I would say that is probably the richest ecosystem compared to any city that I've explored because probably by the nature of the Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, and other companies having big outposts here, and headquarters here, there is a lot of machine learning talent and a lot of data science talent. And, you know, University of Washington is a really strong school. And because of that, a lot of enterprises decided to create machine learning and data science outposts here. I think last time I checked in 2019, there were more than 180 outposts. So offices that specifically hired data scientists in Seattle. So it's a very rich network, very rich ecosystem of practitioners, machine learning practitioners. And I, again, was very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time to be able to start bringing together these practitioners because they're all in Seattle. So in my introduction, you mentioned that I'm an organizer of a community called R Squared AI, stands for Robust and Responsible AI. And really that community began after I was speaking to a lot of the data scientists in person, you know, back when, when we met in person with people, uh, I was speaking to a lot of them over coffees. And one of the things they kept mentioning to me is that they don't have a community. They don't have a network. They wish they would be able to hang out with other people in other companies who are running into the same problems that they're running in. They felt very siloed. You know, they were still an outpost of some bigger company here solving data science problems, machine learning problems. And typically, you know, the teams were very small, three, four, 10 people. So I started bringing meetups together, started bringing people together. There are a lot of awesome speakers, both out of the University of Washington and guest speakers who would come in and visit Seattle and then come to the meetup and speak. So uh, the community started growing very organically just from meeting up on the roof of the Allen Institute for AI. And today it's uh, more than 1,200 people 
And, um, you know, because of COVID, it became international. So every time we organize a meetup, other people that are joining from all over the world. So I was very fortunate to realize that there is such a rich community here in Seattle to kind of start this group and start bringing these practitioners together. Yeah, for sure. And maybe just kind of double click on that part about community building and and how you create these events for people to get together, like enjoy experience. What are some of the you know best practices of creating get together gathering of people who share interest that facilitate the authentic connection rather than just poor networking purpose enjoy experience, you know, running multiple iterations of this community, both in person and virtually. Yeah. I don't know if I have anything particularly groundbreaking that I learned. I would say what's important is bringing people together who have something very concrete and common. So I know there are a lot of communities that are for beginner data scientists. So you want to start your career in data science or machine learning, you get together and like everybody's on the same page and everybody's learning together. And that's like one very concrete way, one very concrete theme to gather people around. I think it's a little bit harder, but requires same alignment when you're trying to bring people together that are not beginners. So like beginner is just the easiest common denominator, right? And then if you if you're like, okay, I want to bring people who are not beginner, like what's the common denominator that I need to find? In my case, the common denominator that I identified was bringing people together who work as data scientists and machine learning engineers at enterprises. So they had a lot of things in common, a lot of challenges that they were facing in common. Uh, and that created just a really natural way for the topics that we would cover for things that people will talk to each other about. So that's one important thing about community building. And then in the second one, I think it's purely from organizational perspective. And it's very hard to do, unfortunately, during COVID because everything is on Zoom. But it's definitely possible. I think any meetup, any event should have a, an organized component to it and then not organized component to it. So a component where a speaker comes in, gives a presentation, everybody asks questions, and then hopefully everybody's inspired with new ideas. And then they have an hour to just network and mingle and make friends uh, and develop relationships. And I think any community who does two of these things really well is destined to be successful. And uh, any community that's not doing that well, that would probably be something to improve. Go back to your point, you're defining the purpose of the gathering. And then from that purpose, you create the persona, ideal persona that you want to target and then reach out to them. And then by virtue of similarities, there's a higher likelihood of they connecting on a certain same topic. Initially, this made up happening on the rooftop of AI to Allen Institute for AI, right? So after finishing the one year doing that master program, you spend the next one and a half years as a CTO in residence at AI2, whose mission is to contribute to humanities through high-impact AI research and engineering. As part of this role, you have evaluated a range of AI technologies for viability and product readiness. So can you share a bit about your responsibility uh, while working there? Sure. My time at the Allen Institute for AI was hands down the most fun job I could have ever dreamed of. I essentially spent time talking to people and prototyping. I prototyped many machine learning tools, tools for explainability, bias and fairness, testing, unit testing data, unit testing models, monitoring data and models, doing error analysis and so on. I spoke to countless of machine learning practitioners. 
a lot of data science teams who eventually, you know, became part of the R squared community. And I evaluated how these tools that I'm prototyping are useful or not useful, which ones of them can maybe become a software category in the future, which ones of them cannot become a software category in the future. And then I also evaluated a lot of ideas for commercial readiness of kind of AI first solutions, prototyped hearing aids that do noise canceling with uh, some of the latest deep learning methods, prototyped some solutions for predictive maintenance of commercial real estate, prototyped interesting demand forecasting approaches. And ultimately this was a year where I formulated a lot of ideas and opinions about Y Labs and Y Labs, the company that I'm a fortunate CEO of <laughs> today, was essentially developed as part of that time at the Allen Institute for AI. Throughout my research and discussions with machine learning practitioners, I've identified many different opportunities in the machine learning tool chain that need to be their own tools, need to be their own categories of software. And I got very passionate about monitoring, specifically monitoring and observability ultimately, and led started Ylabs and spun out Ylabs in 2019. Let's follow that thread and talk about Ylabs. So you, you've been a co-founder CEO of Ylabs since November 2019. And as you probably mentioned, the focus is really on an AI observability platform built to enable every enterprise to run AI with certainty. And in fact, I got a chance to read this blog post you've written that talk about some of the early misadventures with AI while you're still working at Amazon that inspired the incubation of Wildlabs at AI2. So maybe can you share more details, some of the backstory behind the actual founding of the company? So at Amazon, I had the opportunity and the fortune of living a little bit in the future of machine learning adoption. As we discussed earlier, we're building the machine learning platform in 2015 and machine learning platforms were not even a thing at that time. So I had the chance to experience kind of the challenges with machine learning adoption that enterprises are just beginning to experience today or just began to experience in 2019. And I felt, you know, back then at Amazon that I could really make a difference by leaving and making some of the approaches, tools, knowledge accessible to every organization who is beginning to deploy machine learning to production and in many cases doesn't yet know that they will face a lot of the challenges with operating machine learning in production. And also doesn't these organizations typically don't have access to the same resources that the things companies do and just wouldn't be able to build the types of tools that we built at Amazon. So Originally, it was not an entrepreneurial endeavor, but rather an engineering endeavor. Because as an engineer, when I solved some of these problems at Amazon, I was really interested in figuring out how to generalize these solutions. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as an engineer, you build a solution to a very particular use case. And then the next thing you think about is like, okay, how can I make this more generalizable to more use cases? how can I arrive to a more generic, a more elegant solution? So I wanted to go and figure out what other people do when it comes to operating machine learning production, what are going to be some of the common themes from what I, between what I saw at Amazon and other organizations, and how can I develop more generic versions of the tools that I built at Amazon? 
And while I was the Allen Institute for AI, I had the fortune of just talking to a lot of the data science teams and talking to a lot of practitioners and kept hearing stories that were very similar to my own experiences. So when I was at Amazon, we deploy a certain solution to production because of my DevOps background and tier one support experience, I would carry a pager, would get paged when something didn't go well, would, you know, spend evenings and weekends, occasionally on holidays, trying to debug things that don't go well. Surprisingly, a lot of machine learning things get derailed during holidays, especially if you're doing like something that has to do with consumer patterns. So it was, you know, my personal big pain point. But when I started talking to the practitioners in various organizations, I realized that they're experiencing a lot of the things that I already experienced. And there were many concrete patterns that formed for me. And one of the most interesting and concrete patterns that I've identified is kind of being able to answer a question of why something is not going right. Why is your machine learning model not making the predictions that you expect it to make? Or why are the customer experiences are not aligning with your expectations? So that ultimately mapped in the taxonomy of tools that you could build for machine learning applications that mapped into monitoring because monitoring gives you an idea of or what has changed, what is different, what is not going right. And ultimately it mapped to observability, which just a superset of, kind of monitoring problems because observability gives you an idea of how can you tell what's happening in your application based on the things that your application is emitting, based on the information that your application is emitting. So all of this process of kind of talking to practitioners and aligning their experiences with my own ultimately was kind of the foundation of what we do today at iLabs. And then I spent quite a bit of time on that engineering endeavor, really figuring out how do you solve a problem of machine learning monitoring and data monitoring and came up with some really interesting ideas. Went back to some of my colleagues from the Amazon days that were building the machine learning platform with me, Sam Gracie and Andy Dang. I really enjoyed working with them and thought it would be just incredible to have another opportunity to work with them solving a problem that they're both passionate about as well. And we started MyLabs. I think what stood out from that answer is really focus on the why, like why things doesn't work the way you expect it and how it could be better. Just even in the name of the company. So I can see that passion for this problem that, that you've shown here. So we talked a lot about the why. Let's just talk more about the how, right? In the same blog post, you argue that for an AI solution to be robust and responsible, it must, one, be observable and maintainable by human operators to continuously evaluate the quality of the data flowing through. And three, keep all stakeholders informed about the behavior of the application. Can you, uh, you know, double click on some of these points and explain how they can be backed into the Wild Labs platform? Sure. So let's start with observability and kind of going back to what observability means. Essentially, it's the property of a system where a human can figure out the state and the health of the system by looking at various outputs of the system. So I think observability is probably one of the most important properties of any software or actually any technology because you always need to figure out how, well, be it hardware or software, one of the biggest questions on your mind as a user or as, a, as an operator is, is this working or not working? And you can tell it by looking at various things, various information that this piece of technology emits. 
And I think when it comes to machine learning systems, they're definitely lacking in observability because A, it's hard to tell. They're making a lot of predictions. It's hard to tell whether these predictions are correct or not because the models are probabilistic until you get ground truth. And you know it might take a while for you to actually get ground truth and evaluate them. It's really hard to tell how well they're working or not working just from infrastructure perspective, because these systems are really complex, distributed, process massive amounts of data and so on. So figuring out the health of these systems is really hard and having observability becomes very, very important when you're operating them. Now, the second point on performing continuous data quality monitoring becomes very important specifically for machine learning systems because machine learning systems can both be swayed and, well, swayed by changes in the distribution of the data that they're observing, swayed and kind of broken by data bugs that an upstream feature pipeline could introduce and so on. So ensuring that the quality of the data that ultimately flows through the inference is one of the most important activities that would help you ensure that your machine learning system is is running reliably. And then the last one is keeping all the stakeholders informed about the behavior of the application. I think it's one of the most challenging problems. And it is a problem that is fairly unique to machine learning because not just engineers and data scientists and PMs have to understand the health of the system. It's also subject matter experts because ultimately machine learning automates the decisions that certain subject matter experts have been doing previously to the application deployment. So making sure that there's a good mechanism of disseminating the knowledge about how this application is behaving to some people who are potentially not even technical, that they can understand, you know, not, and, you know, some of this is uh, touching on explainability, but explainability is all about, you know, this one prediction that was made and what influenced this prediction. But when your machine learning model is making hundreds or thousands of predictions every minute, it's about understanding, you know, which segments of end users are impacting and how are they being impacted and being able to consult with subject matter experts who would kind of help untangle whether these impacts are what you expect or not. All those points make a lot of sense, especially the last one is more on the organizational perspective. And I love your framing, a good mechanism for disseminating knowledge across different stakeholders. Let's visit the first two bullet points in more details, so the idea of observability and maintainability. So we'd like to, uh, to kind of dissect the anatomy of an enterprise AI observability platform. Based on what I have read on the Labs website, you identify the five components that include telemetry collection, debugging, time series database, monitoring and anomaly detection, and as well as a visualization layer being added on top of that. So yeah, would you mind unpacking these five components for the listeners? Sure. So everything ultimately begins with collecting the information that's necessary for understanding how the application, the AI application in this case is doing. And this is a very common pattern. You know, any application performance monitoring solution like Datadog or Splunk, which are two probably most common ones, does this. You know, the solution begins with collecting important telemetry about the health of the infrastructure. In the case of AI observability, we collect telemetry about the data that comes into the model and then about the model outputs, the model predictions. And then if we do have ground truth about the model performance, and I'll unpack this a little bit, maybe in a few next questions. And now, once we 
start collecting this telemetry, the next important task is to organize it in some kind of database to enable very easy interactive potentially access to this data. So to be more concrete, let's say we have a model that predicts whether a customer would churn or not. So from the telemetry perspective, we would be looking at either batches of the predictions that this model makes or at some kind of chunk of time, let's say hourly, we'll look at the prediction that this model has made in the last hour. And we want to understand everything about the input features into the model and then everything about the predictions of the model. And if we have any, again, any sense of actuals, we want to understand everything we can about the performance of the model. So we collect information about the feature distributions. We collect information about lineage and we collect information about the score distributions that the model has generated and so on. So that becomes essentially a log file. And then this log file gets centralized in some kind of database. So you could go back and say, okay, tell me what was the distribution of this particular feature in the last week or in the last day or in the last month, or tell me whether the counts that we've seen of the predictions that the model has made align with the number of predictions we've seen last hour, yesterday, last week, and so on. So by organizing it in a database, you kind of enable this access. And then, you know, once you have these data points organized in the database, you can essentially run time series anomaly detection, which is essentially a monitoring task. Once you detect anomalies, you bubble them up to your end user in that visualization layer. You send notifications to some kind of user workflow. So essentially you, you bubble up the problems that you observe to the operators so they can go in and uh, start root causing and alleviating. And the root causing process, i.e. the debugging process, I think is the last kind of component that an AI observability platform needs. Because once you're aware about the problem, the next thing you need to do is to resolve the problem as quickly as possible. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, uh, explaining how so the whole system works and their purpose, each of the component as well. You're kind of talking about the importance of like, you know, collecting telemetry and then actually, you know, logging data, essentially. Really essential to the Ylabs enterprise platform is Ylogs, which is an open source ML data logging library. In fact, you have given several public talks stating that data logging is a critical missing component in the production ML stack. Can you elaborate more on that statement and how does the desired Y log and tackle that challenge at a high level? As I'm talking to machine learning practitioners, kind of trying to understand the common challenges that they're trying to overcome when they have models running in production, I hear a lot of very common questions uh, that they grapple with, which are, you know, how's the model performing? Should I be worrying about data drift? What did my training data look like? Is the data that I'm seeing currently during inference very different from my training data or not? What did the input data into the model look like yesterday and so on? And these are all very, very simple questions, but answering them is really painful if, if you have to essentially reproduce the entire, like replay the entire system to answer what happened yesterday, or if you have to run some kind of complicated ETL query pull a ton of data in post-processing just to figure out what was the distribution of a few features in your model yesterday or last week, or you know how different is the, is the distribution of the features today versus when you trained the model. So these are simple questions, but answering them requires a lot of work. Now, in my experience building 
machine learning and deploying machine learning systems and actually building and deploying traditional software, the solution to some of these problems that I described lies in keeping track of this information. So you can kind of just look back and say, okay, I have a log file that tells me what was the distribution of my data yesterday. I don't need to replay the whole system. I need I don't need to run any ATL queries. I've already computed that. I computed that over a meaningful window of time and I can just go back and load it and uh, look at it and answer my question. You know, in traditional systems, that's what you do with logs. So if you want to understand what happened in your system yesterday, you go and you parse the logs. And machine learning systems, we typically don't log things especially things about data and things about model predictions. So what we discovered is that something as simple as logging built specifically for machine learning data can help a lot of pain points, can help with testing both data and, and models, monitoring data and models, debugging data and models, and documenting data and models. My team, after many, many years of kind of supporting production applications in various companies, we decided that this kind of paradigm of machine learning logging has to be accessible to every practitioner. So we released an open source library called Ylogs, which is a purpose-built machine learning logging library. And this library provides essentially a really lightweight, portable, configurable, and mergeable data logs for both batch and streaming data workloads. And as out there for the practitioners to embrace by making the smallest change to how they do machine learning, essentially one line of code on your data frame that you're processing at every batch or continuously accumulating, you know, one hour of data if you're running streaming pipelines. One simple change that then gives you visibility into what happened over the past X number of hours, days, and the months, and ultimately allows you to build very important machine learning operations tools like testing, debugging, and documenting, and monitoring. Yeah, thanks for really providing the context, how you conceptualize this thesis and talk about the, the design of Wildhawk as well. And there's also a very comprehensive blog post on on the website called Wildhawk's Embrace Data Logging cross Streaming System. that will be sure to include in the show notes as well as some of your talks so that uh, listeners can have a chance to dig a bit deeper and, and uh, revisit some of the points that you just mentioned about the importance of data logging in ML development. Excellent. Thank you. Let's take off your machine learning hat and put on your father hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any uh, early stage startup father. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Wildlife's mission? I would summarize the lessons that I've learned in two things. One is being patient and the other one is being intentional. And I'll unpack these a little bit and I'll start with being patient because, you know, at a startup, you're running at a hundred miles per hour or faster. And you always, you know, want things to happen really fast, uh, which is not something that works well for recruiting and building a team because you know, finding the right people takes time and patience. So, you know, developing some of these relationships early, building your network kind of with a goal of potentially working with the people whenever they're ready to change their jobs or go and pursue other adventures, something that I found to work really well. So I'm a big networker, 
love meeting people, love meeting people who are passionate about machine learning tooling space or general machine learning space or actually robust software space. And, you know, when I meet people, I never try to recruit them. Although, you know, as CEO, maybe that's what I should be doing. Rather, I always try to build human connections and get a sense of what this person wants to do at some point in their life. And then you never know, in my experience, it happened a few times that a year later, six months later, two years later, I meet this person again, or they reach out back to me and they're ready to join the startup adventure. And they're not just ready to join the startup adventure because, you know, they decided that yesterday, but they're very intentional about it, which is the second aspect. I think, you know, building an early team, you have to build a team of people who are really passionate about solving the problem, really passionate about the customers that they're solving the problem for, and really passionate about kind of working together because it's a big and scary roller coaster in the end of the day. So mm-hmm. bringing people who are intentional about joining a startup, intentional about solving this problem, I think is what makes an incredible startup team. And uh, we certainly have that at YLabs and I'm incredibly fortunate to be part of that team. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Passion and intentionality, the domain knowledge, the focus on the problem trumps I guess, experience and credentials at this stage. Finding enthusiastic and committed contributors is not an easy task for any open source project. What are some of the tactics that your team has been using in order to find and engage some of the contributors to Ylogs? Hey, it all goes back to customer obsession, right? So we engage with people who live this problem and we ask, how can we help? How can we make their life easier? And how can, you know, the open source project that we are evangelizing and trying to build a community around, how can it make their life easier? What's their wish list? And then, you know, collaborate on either implementing their wish list within YLabs or having them come in and contribute to the project and actively seeking people to join in the effort. It's very much a community effort and very much requires uh, community participation and feedback to become widely adopted. So uh, if anybody listening is interested in building the standard for machine learning and data logging, please reach out. We'd love to talk to you. Tangentially related to my previous question, finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What are some of the challenges that your team have to overcome in order to find some of these early design partners slash like our customer? I would say probably the biggest challenge is this somewhat of a bureaucratic red tape around the adoption of machine learning tools in the enterprise. And it has to do with the fact that, you know, any machine learning tool that gets deployed in an enterprise ultimately touches very proprietary data. So SaaS solutions are not very common unless you're just doing things like model lineage or hyperparameter tuning. Mm-hmm. If you're touching the data, uh, every organization is very protective about their data because machine learning models typically run on the most proprietary data. So if you're talking to about you know 150, over 150 data science teams, we realize that the practitioners want the tools to be more productive and to struggle less with the operational aspect of machine learning. But the procurement process is really a mystery for them. Like figuring out how to 
bring in a complex tool into the enterprise, how to get approvals, who needs to be in, you know, around the table making the decisions and so on. It's really hard, not for the faint of heart. And many data scientists just don't want to go and figure that out. Ultimately, after kind of learning about this big pain point, one of the things that we decided to do at Ylabs is to give practitioners a monitoring tool that doesn't have complex deployment, doesn't touch proprietary data, and doesn't involve complex procurement process. Because ultimately, in order to kind of democratize this best practice, it has to be embraced by practitioners. And you know, if they have to go through a lot of friction in order to try, even try out these tools, it's going to take us a long time to develop these best practices. So that's precisely what we realized early on at Ylabs. And we really approached this as an engineering problem. So how do you create a SaaS tool that does monitoring, but does not move raw data around? And Ylabs is ultimately what allows us to do that. So as an open source library, it plugs in to the premise where the data is running. And then right there without moving data around, Ylogs captures all of the key statistics about the data and about the model. And by the time the statistics goes to the SAS, which ultimately is the deployment model that doesn't require you to go through a lot of procurement red tape, the statistics does not contain any confidential information, any proprietary information. So this really removes the barriers for individuals, for data scientists to go go in and try a monitoring solution with just a few clicks, an API key and one line of Python code if they're running in Python and a few lines of Scala code if they have Spark and uh, other integrations really removes the barriers for them to try it and to see the value and to start embracing uh, kind of best practices and, and monitoring and observability. Yeah, thanks for sharing that insights. I guess like from a business part of view, like my locks are supposed to be the top of the funnel, right? That attract, drive that rocket growth, bottom-up adoption, and then eventually the values, the financial values is being generated at the enterprise product. So like what we said here is like where to revisit that point that early in our conversation while you were working at Amazon, working at ML platform, right? You, you were mentioning like important to identify the biggest pain point and then make that super easy to drive by in for the rest of the team at Amazon. And I, I guess like here, you apply the similar mental models for the context of Ylabs, you know, and define the complex procurement that enterprise have to go through in order to adopt a new product. And you make that super easy with a one-click button via the open source project. So yeah, I, I just want to mention that just to elaborate on those points and how the thinking that you approaches was like. Yes. Yeah, thanks for summarizing that. That indeed is an interesting parallel that I didn't even recognize myself. <laughs> so as Ylabs grows and expands with new high this year, what are some of the go-to-market initiatives that you are most excited about for the company? So the initiative that I'm most excited about is having this experience that I just described to you, with completely self-serve SaaS monitoring experience, putting this into general availability. So currently we're working with a small handful of users, kind of working through the actual self-serve onboarding experience. And in the end of this quarter, we're launching this in general availability to any practitioner. So there's going to be a free tier because we strongly believe that, you know, not monitoring your models, not monitoring your machine learning applications is an engineering malpractice. Mm-hmm. You should be a good engineer or a good data scientist and kind of embrace one of the most basic things 
that are key to operating software, which is monitoring and understanding when is it working and when is it not working. So we're opening up the platform to general availability later this quarter with a free tier and looking to enable every data scientist out there. doesn't matter where they're company is in procurement process or figuring out budgets for machine learning monitoring, we really want the solution to be available to everybody. Yeah, excited to see some of the progress on the upfront. Finally, you were recognized a few months ago by Geekwai as the CEO of the year for the Pacific Northwest startup community. What does this recognition mean to you as an entrepreneur? Well, that was a very emotional, big moment for me, a very big surprise. I did not anticipate such a high you know, degree of praise from the Pacific Northwest community. I think ultimately, uh, you know, the quality of the CEO is just the reflection of the quality of the team. So I think what this recognition means to me is that I was lucky and fortunate to bring together an incredible group of people to solve an incredibly important problem in machine learning adoption and software in general. And uh, we're making significant progress in solving this problem, giving tools to practitioners that would make them run AI with certainty. And I'm just very fortunate to wake up every morning and get really excited about being at work, what, you know, in the COVID times, that really means like dialing into Zoom. Occasionally, we actually get together with a team. But I think ultimately, it's it's all about me being very fortunate to work with an incredible group of people who came together to solve this very important problem of AI observability. Yeah, the mission, meeting the team, and those two are very important. If I you actually write like a short LinkedIn article sharing, you know, your research and this honor and you, another point, but you also mentioned, which is like lean on family and friends, right? And like a female CEO and you have two kids, I, I believe. In general, like how do you... Just one. <laughs> Just oh, one for <laughs> so far. Well, you know, Y-Labs and the baby could, could be counted as two. <laughs> what is your you know, opinion regarding like work-life integration or work-life balance? What is your perspective regarding that? <laughs> I actually think having a child makes your work-life balance better because you just can't work all the time. You, you have to take care of this little human and they're so darn cute that you just can't resist spending time with them. So I think ultimately, now that I'm walking this path myself, being an entrepreneur, being the CEO, and being a, a young mother, looking back at my probably very unhealthy work-life habits and pre-Athena, my, my daughter's name is Athena, and pre-Athena days, I would definitely spend way too much time in front of a laptop, way, way too much time working and just being completely obsessed with the problem at hand. And now I have a fairly healthy balance of working and then spending time with my daughter, which I think ultimately is a good thing for anybody because when you're Unplugged when your mind is not cluttered, email or various information streams that you're trying to process continuously when you're just, you know, sitting and absorbing some incredible new skill and admiring an incredible new skill that your baby daughter has just mastered. Mine just started crawling a few days ago and it's hilarious. It really kind of, I think, activates different parts of your brain and ultimately it's it's very healthy for you. So I would probably be contrarian and recommend everybody to not worry about 
running a company and having babies at the same time. I think ultimately it's a very healthy thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love how you emphasize the notion of unblocking from digital life and, and having that analog interaction with the world. And ultimately that, you know, relax your mind, improve the quality of your decision-making output as well, which is very important, especially in the role of CEO, when you have to make high-stake decision majority of the time. Uh, let's say this for our conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader ML community whose work you admire. So the first one would be Cassie Kazirkov, who is the, I believe, chief AI decision scientist at Google. And I admire her because she makes AI sound accessible to everybody, which I think is really important. Uh, the second person would be Dan Jeffries from Pachyderm, who's also the founder of the AI Infrastructure Alliance, which is building the canonical stack for AI and machine learning applications. And the work that he's doing brings together the community in a really meaningful way. And then the third person I'll call out is somebody less well-known, but nevertheless, very admirable. This person's name is Michael Petrichuk. He is the CTO of a company here in Seattle called Wellset Labs. Mm -hmm. And I really admire him because in just, you know, the short time of maybe a little bit over two years, he was able to build state-of-the-art text-to-speech solution, which is the product that is behind Wellset Labs with, you know, a really small engineering team, very humble way. And I think he is moving the state of the art of what's possible with text-to-speech forward and will be making groundbreaking contributions to the area. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those profiles. Question number two, what is one book that you recommend for especially technical people and especially engineers? to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset? Oh, I would say I love reading The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. It's probably a very common book to recommend, but you know he describes the startup journey in a very raw form, uh, in a very honest way. And I think before diving in into entrepreneurial journey, it's a good book that gives you a preview of what you will live. Yeah, or the below the live version that doesn't make it to the press. And finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage ML practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would say do not deploy machine learning applications to production without enabling logging. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> So, Alessa, I, uh, I think that's a great way to end our conversation. I really enjoy learning about your personal upbringing, immigrating from Kazakhstan, getting interested in mathematics, go to UDAF, and then your nine years in at Amazon, arranging, working from QA and DevOps project to leading internal ML initiatives to your time working at AI2, building community with the R-Square group for personal responsible AI practitioners to your current journey with Labs. Fascinating conversation relating to the base of AI observability, technical product, the why and how making it works in the real world, as well as some of the answers related to becoming a good CEO, ranging from hiring decision to fighting commuters to open source project and adopters of enterprise product. And be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and follow your journey with Wild Apps, as well as other things that you've been advocating for in the past couple of years or so. I um, uh, really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you, James. I had the blast. Thank you for all the very thoughtful questions that touched 
they're a various part of my biography that I haven't thought about for a while, and I really enjoyed the discussion. I'm looking forward to listening more of the interviews that you put together. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.